a striking development in the North African nation of Tunisia. Tonight, after violent protests that have lasted for weeks, the Tunisian government has fallen. You don't know if it's tear gas. It could be bullets. I didn't expect to see one of my friends shot in the chest in front of me. I'm Aaron Brown. And I'm Cyrus Rodell. And this is Revolution One from the Agora Podcast Network, where we bring the story of the Tunisian Revolution to life through the voices of those who lived it. It was the mother of one of the martyrs who pushed me to take the photos. She was saying, you have to show the world what's really happening in Tunisia. We wanted to know what it takes to bring down a dictator. So we went to where the Arab Spring began, to Tunisia, where 10 years ago, a desperate young fruit seller set himself on fire and set a new course for his country and the world. We'll tell you the incredible story of how a military officer and a hairdresser managed to create an ironclad police state that they ruled from yachts and mansions for 23 years. And over the course of eight episodes, we'll hear from the political prisoners, spies, and students who, armed with nothing more than rocks and Facebook, brought it all down. 10 years on, we're still feeling the effects of the Arab Spring today. From the global migration crisis to the rise in nationalism in Europe and the US, and with popular uprisings from Hong Kong to Black Lives Matter still gripping the headlines, we thought it would be the perfect time to look back to Revolution One. Join us on January 14th, wherever you get your podcasts. Pontifex is part of the Agora Podcast Network. And welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 93, Pope Zachary. And that is Zachary, not Gregory, because I kept, while writing this entire episode, I kept putting Gregory, so in case I accidentally say Gregory, it's Zachary. (laughs) Only Zachary. Only Zachary, not Gregory. (laughs) Not again. Not three in a row. That would be ridiculous. It would be ridiculous. And this is also a new name. We have we have a Zachary. We have not had a Zachary before. Doesn't feel like one of those old timey names. You know what I mean? Zachary feels very twentieth century. The nineties, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of Zachs. There sure were. I guess late eighties. Late eighties, yeah, for sure. Zachary was born in six seventy nine in Santa Severina, Calabria. He was ethnically Greek, and his father's name was Polychronus. Now, you might not remember, but we have had a Polychronus before. This was the man who was a monothelite, and he showed up at the Third Council of Constantinople thinking that if he whispered monothelite theology into the ear of a dead man, that he would resurrect him and therefore prove monothelitism as the correct Christology. So, you know, I just had to point that out because that name always sticks out in my head as the weird resurrection man. It's a weird name to begin with, so, like, you do you, Polychronus. <laughs> this is not the same Polychronus, obviously, but needed to be mentioned. What if it was? What if he was immortal? <laughs> He's getting his monophyletism views in by fathering a pope. I mean, his sorcery was clearly just letting him down that day. Maybe it was just stage fright. <laughs> 
There is one source that suggests that Zachary started out his career as a Benedictine monk, which is possible, but this isn't confirmed anywhere else. All we know for sure about his role in the church is that he was a deacon in Rome by 732, as his signature appears on the decrees of the Roman Council of 731-32 that we discussed in Pope Gregory III's episode in response to the iconoclastic edicts of the emperor. Zachary was present at this council and signed his adherence to the excommunication of iconoclasts. He was then made a cardinal priest shortly after and served in that role until the death of Pope Gregory III in 741, when Zachary was unanimously chosen to succeed him on December 3rd, 741. Now, as to why Zachary received a unanimous election, we can turn to the Liber Pontificalis, who gives us a very glowing priest crush outline of his personality. Ah, yes, you said priest crush was now the norm. It is going to be the norm, and it's going to get weirder, but this one is just sort of glowing and crazy. He says, He was gentle and gracious, adorned with all kindness, a lover of the clergy and all Roman people, slow to anger and quick to have pity, repaying no one evil for evil, nor taking even merited vengeance, but dutiful and compassionate to everyone. From the time of his ordination, he was the one who returned good for evil, even to those who were previously his persecutors, and when giving them preferment, he at the same time enriched them with goods. You know, when they say slow to anger but quick to pity, it just reminds me of like an old southern grandma who doesn't want to <laughs> say like mean things and just goes, oh, bless your heart. Well, and that's kind of exactly what it is. What we're getting here is that he is a kind man who embodies this philosophy of turning the other cheek and not taking revenge. Like it comes up multiple times that, oh, he didn't go after those people. So what we know is there clearly was some drama that someone tried to mess with him at some point or bring him down before he was Pope, but we just don't get what actually happened. All we know is that he killed them with kindness once he was Pope. And so I am now imagining him doing it with all sorts of smugness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just the Southern Grandma to a T. <laughs> exactly. The best revenge is living well, and if you're the Pope, I assume you're living very well at this time, so he's just going around giving the oh bless your hearts. <laughs> As we begin looking into Zachary's papacy, we should also acknowledge that he marks an important end, in that Zachary is considered to be the last Pope of the Byzantine papacy period that we introduced all the way back with Pope John III in episode 63. Remember, this started with the initial encroachment of the empire into the papacy and then evolved into a heavy influence where popes couldn't even be consecrated until they received approval from the emperor, crested with popes being arrested and dragged away to Constantinople, and then it started to break down and diminish, as we have seen. Last week, Pope Gregory III was the last pope to seek imperial confirmation. But only because he was being petty. Only because he was being petty and trying to stall from being pope. But he was the last one to do it. And so now Zachary marks the end of this period of influence. And to be clear, this doesn't mean that the papacy is going to burst into some sort of age of independence. Because our next pope marks the beginning of the Frankish papacy. The Franks are coming. 
Hot dogs? Hot dogs. They are coming. But it's important to consider why Zachary is being considered the last of the Byzantine popes. Like, why are we marking this era right here? And part of it is that he was the last pope to write to Constantinople upon his election at all. But even this was done differently, because at the time, the patriarch in Constantinople is still officially embracing iconoclasm, so Zachary doesn't write to the patriarch. Instead, he just pens a letter to the Church of Constantinople to inform them of his election, conspicuously and very overtly bypassing the patriarch. He also does write to the emperor, but this is also its own complex situation, because in June of 741, Emperor Leo III, our instigator of the iconoclast controversy, died and was succeeded by his son, Constantine V, who has the unfortunate epithet of the dung-named, or as Totalis Rankium puts it, Poo-Face. So, like, sometimes you say these emperors' names, Poo-Face one thing. I need to go back to Leo. Leo, a man named after lions, <laughs> hates the idea of lamb statues. <laughs> this is very true, yes. You're absolutely right. But he, I don't think he's depicting himself with lions either. He's just putting his face on everything. So there's no, there's no lions with the lambs. No lions or lambs. And to be fair, Leo III, he has an epithet. He's usually called the Isaurian or the Iconoclast. So he has his own epithet. It's not Poo-Face. It's not Poo-Face. No, that's his poor son. So Zachary wrote to the emperor to inform him of the election. But when the papal envoy arrived in 742, they discovered that the emperor's brother-in-law, Artabastus, had revolted and taken Constantinople with the support of the patriarch, while the new emperor, Constantine Pooface, had escaped to Amorian. This is all very chaotic, and the envoys from the pope just decide to hold off on delivering the letter to the new emperor because it's all very fresh and it's all very chaotic, let's just see what happens. And so, sure enough, in November of 743, Constantine Pouface defeated Artabastus and his son Niketas in battles to regain his throne. And then Artabastus and his sons were blinded and monked. So then, and only then, now that things are looking a little bit more steady, do the ambassadors of the Pope present the Emperor with Zachary's letter. And the Emperor responded by gifting the Pope two pieces of territory, two estate villages in the modern-day Ninfa and Norba, which increased the Papal States that was established in our last couple episodes. Have some land? Have some land! Oh, you're a new Pope! Here's some land! I hear you got some, some external territory going on! Here's, uh, here's a little bit. And this is great! Unfortunately for Zachary, the emperor ignored the other half of Zachary's letter, which urged him to reject iconoclasm, and instead, Constantine Pooface becomes a hardcore iconoclast. And this is actually how he gets the Pooface dung named nickname, because the supporters of icons, so Western theology orthodox, we call them iconophiles or iconodules, they're writing the sources. And their sources are so hostile to Constantine and try to vilify him in every way possible, which leads to a rumor that he basically pooped himself at his own baptism 
and so defiled the sacrament. Sometimes babies poop. Well, yeah, but pooping at your own baptism, that is a bad omen. That leads to heresy and iconoclasm, and you get stuck with a really unfortunate epithet. Sometimes babies poop. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's a thing that happens. <laughs> How dare. They're very rude. I mean, there is no actual evidence that he pooped his own baptism, but that is why he has this nickname that has survived in thousands of years of history. Imagine a thing you did as a baby just haunting you for your days till the end of days. I mean, to be fair, if he hadn't been an iconoclast, it probably wouldn't have gone that way. I've never heard somebody be offended for Constantine V before, so I'm- I just feel really bad. I just- Do you know all the dumb stuff you did as a baby? <laughs> this is Emperor takes off his diaper in the night and rubs it on his bed. <laughs> what? Like, you're a baby? Well, I mean, we're establishing a new historical position now. <laughs> Let's give, now that we're sympathetic to Constantine, let's give him a little bit of credit here because it does seem that his zealous enforcement and his hardcore iconoclasm only becomes a focus in the East. Like, he doesn't continue to fight this with the Pope. They have a pretty okay and, like, peaceful relationship. Otherwise, he's just like, I'm gonna iconoclast over here. You do you over there. Emperor smash mash potatoes in his face. <laughs> I'm not over this. In yet another surprising turn of historical opinion. <laughs> I just... <laughs> babies do stupid stuff all the time. They do. Emperor spit up a little. But he's not going to come up a whole lot again. And this is, this is probably a relief for Zachary because he has a lot more pressing concerns thanks to the Lombards. Now, if you remember where we left it last week, Pope Gregory III had an alliance with the Duke Thrasimund of Spoleto and the Duke of Benevento that had really, really, really angered the Lombard king, Leotprand. This was all that pettiness. And we had left Leotprand literally marching on Rome and Gregory dying before anything was done. So Zachary gets to inherit this immediate and impending threat. And now that the king is rounding on Rome, it turned out that Thrasimund, in his newly reclaimed duchy, which, remember, the Pope helped him get, he's not super keen on reciprocating the support he'd been given by the Pope. And so instead of defending the Pope and the Pope's lands, Leotprand, as he's marching on Rome, is able to capture four cities from the papal holdings. Zachary is in this position, and he decides, without much hesitation, that his alliance, forged by his predecessor, was doing him no good. It's just causing more problems. Why am I going to ally with Thrasimund when he's not even going to rise to the occasion? In order to protect Rome and the papal lands, he abandons Thrasimund and goes directly to the king. And I do mean directly, because the pope left Rome and headed to Ternai, to meet with Leotprand in person. Despite the bad blood between the king and the last pope, Leotprand welcomed Zachary, and according to an account from Thomas Hodgkin's Italy and Her Invaders, quote, mutual salutations passed, prayers were offered, and the two potentates came forth in the church together, and then the king walked in lowly reverence beside the pope for half a mile, 
till they reached the place outside the city where the tents were pitched for both host and guest. And there they abode the rest of the day. On Saturday again there was a solemn interview. Zacharias delivered a long address to the Lombard king, exhorting him to abstain from the shedding of blood, and to follow these things which make for peace. Touched, as the ecclesiastics believed, by the eloquence of their chief, Leopran granted all and even more than was asked for. The four cities and their inhabitants were given back, but not, if we may believe the biography to Leo and Constantine the emperors, but to the holy man Zacharias himself. Large slices of the papal patrimony, which had been lost in earlier and troublous times, were now respond. As this indicates, the four cities that had been captured were given back to the Pope, but in the Pope's own right, and not to the empire, which they'd been taken. And on top of this, all patrimonies taken over the last 30 years were also returned, and Leopold also returned Roman captives with no ransom payment. This is an amazing, amazing deal for the Pope. So just because he went to meet him in person, he has now expanded the Papal States in his own right, not for the Empire, and he's received all of these patrimonial lands back. So this is a huge influx in currency for the Church. And then they cemented a 20-year treaty, and the Pope consecrated a bishop for the Lombards. It's all looking pretty good. It's going okay. And I'm just going to go back to this because there's a quote here that I just found so amusing because they, they get together, they, they have this consecration of this new bishop, and then it says, Then when the mass was ended, the Pope invited the king to dinner. The meats were so good, the mirth of the company so genuine and unforced, and cordial hilarity as he ate, that as the king said, he did not remember that he had ever eaten so much and so pleasantly. We really needed to know that those meats were so good. The meat, it was delicious. It was so good. It seems like they had a really good time. So the Pope returns to Rome, much wealthier in both land and riches. And according to Paul the Deacon's History of the Lombards, when Thrasimund was made aware that Leoprand and the Pope were now allies, he knew the jig was up for him, and so he just surrenders his duchy. And he is deposed and monked. And this peace treaty that they've signed, this 20-year peace treaty, is put to the test in the following year, when King Leoprand made arrangements to move against Ravenna for the upteenth time since becoming king. And in a very clear example of the Pope's secular influence, rather than turning to the emperor for help, the exarch in Ravenna writes to the Pope, requesting that the Pope intervene with Leoprand and dissuade him from the attack. This is how little the Byzantine Empire has control and influence in Italy now that their main man in Italy is writing to the Pope, not the Emperor, for help. And at first, Zachary's envoys to Leopran were rebuffed, so Zachary decides to go again himself. And after first traveling to Ravenna to appraise himself of the situation, he goes directly to Leopran's capital at Pavia. But before we get to Pavia, I have to tell you about the oddest miracle that occurred along the Pope's journey to Ravenna, according to the Liber Pontificalis. On his departure, when he commended himself in prayer to St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, with his sacerdotes and clergy and travelers, it was Almighty God's will that to prevent their being burnt by the heat, a cloud covered them by day until the place where they pitched their tents. In the evening it rested, but on the next day it was divinely raised up to protect them, and the same cloud covered them and went with them to St. Apollinaris's Basilica in Ravenna. 
And then, as a sign he was to go to the city of Tecinium, there were flaming armies in the clouds going ahead of the holy pontiff. The men and women of Ravenna, both sexes in every age, came out of the city, giving thanks to Almighty God. With copious tears, they welcomed the holy pontiff, crying out and saying, Welcome to our shepherd who has left his own sheep and hastened to deliver us who were about to be lost. Miracles. God gave him a personal cloud to follow him all the way to Ravenna. Sure he did. It's the same cloud and it followed them all the way. It rested at night and would be raised up in the afternoon to prevent them from being burned. A special miracle cloud for your special miracle sunscreen. A napping cloud. And then because you're going to go to Tachinium, you're going to have flaming armies in the cloud as well to announce your arrival. I mean, it must have been spectacular looking. Originally, I was sort of just imagining like a tiny cloud and it only (laughs) covered them. And then you put a flaming army in it. And I was like, well, it's got to be larger, I guess. It's a special cloud from God. It can be as big or as little as it needs to be. The Pope arrives in Pavia on the Feast of St. Peter and Paul, which is June 29th and celebrated the feast day at St. Peter's there with the king. Reverend Alban Butler says, The Lombards were moved to tears at the devotion with which they heard him perform the divine service. In the following days, Zachary was able to convince Leotprand to cancel his plans to attack Ravenna, and to return a portion of territory that Leotprand had held that had been taken from the Exarch in previous incursions. So again, Zachary is categorically successful in bringing peace and stability to Italy. It's looking good. A short while after this meeting took place, in 744, King Leoprand died, and he was succeeded by Hildeprand, who is also called Hildeprand the Useless. Oh no. It's an episode with lots of uh, terrible epithets, so. Hildeprand the Useless was fully prepared to throw away all of the treaty with the Pope. He was just not having any of it. It's like, why, why do we bother with this man? But then he was quickly overthrown by Ratchis, the Duke of Friuli. Among the Lombards, Ratchis represented a pretty strong pro-papal faction, so peace is maintained. And similarly, although we're not going to cover it in detail, when Ratchis attacks Perugia several years later in 749, he too was convinced by the Pope to relent with a personal visit. So every time they attack somewhere, Zachary just goes to meet them in person and gets them to relent. After that, King Ratchis was either deposed or abdicated and replaced by his brother, and then he comes to Rome with his family to retire as a monk at Monte Cassino, just like the English kings have been doing. So with that out of the way, and peace looking good, things looking a little bit more stable, Zachary also pays fairly close attention to the ongoing Christianization of Germania, and actively corresponded with St. Boniface, our missionary, and the Archbishop of Mainz. As he had with our previous popes, Boniface was in regular correspondence with Gregory and used that close relationship with the papacy to his advantage as he worked to organize the German churches. The pope even advised Boniface how to deal with his rival, who was Milo, the bishop of Rams and Trier, who was a notoriously corrupt and licentious bishop who actively opposed any reform or structure that Boniface wanted to implement. Literally, this bishop is just described as the bishop who lives like a layman, with inferences that that means whores and greed. The Pope openly criticized Bishop Milo's actions by saying, As for Milo and his like, who are doing great injury to the Church of God, 
Preach in season and out of season, according to the word of the apostle, that they cease from their evil ways. Which is a nice way of saying he supported Boniface's efforts to have Milo deposed, which Boniface succeeded in at the 744 Council of Soissons. The Pope also approved Boniface's call for a Frankish council to address church regulations and clerical discipline, and appointed him to be the papal legate. This council was organized by Boniface, and Carloman, who is the son of Charles Martel and the current mayor of the palace, to be held on April 21st of 742. Boniface presided over this council, known as the Concilium Germanicum, which becomes important later as we look at the Frankish churches, which suppressed abuses of lax clerics, organized regular synods to be held to maintain order, and established archbishops in the Frankish territories to increase church structure. After this council, he confirmed the establishment of three new bishoprics, Würzburg, Burroughburg, and Erfurt, and confirmed Boniface's appointments of bishops to the metropolitans of Rouen, Reims, and Sens. Zachary also held two synods in Rome to address questions that rose out of the developing Germanic church and the decisions that were reached at the Concilium. The first was held in 743 and dealt with issues around marriage, primarily consanguinity, or the degree in which you can be related and still get married. In this period, Roman law forbade marriages within four degrees. First degree is parent to child. Second is siblings. Third is like uncle, niece, aunt, nephew kind of situation. And fourth degree is first cousins. So all of those are currently the standard of being outlawed in Roman law. But members of the Frankish nobility claim to have a papal dispensation allowing for marriages in the fourth degree back from Gregory II. So they're saying, hey, hang on a second, you can't outlaw these first cousin marriages. We're all married that way. We have a papal dispensation from one of your predecessors. I can't find anywhere that seems to state what the actual verdict on this case was, other than it was dealt with. But accounts of the synod suggest that it confirmed decisions made at the Concilium Germanicum. And when I looked into this with help from our amazing scholar friend, Rutger, he sent some sources that also seemed to indicate that the Concilium also forbade fourth-degree marriages as incestuous. So, by all accounts, it looks like the Concilium Germanicum was not on board with you marrying your cousin. Don't do it. Just, just do not. There's also in this council an implemented prohibition of marriage between co-parents, in quotations, which is like godparents, because I guess being a co-parent created a spiritual bond that was akin to being family with one another, so like god-siblings, which is weird, because if you think about it, you know, if you have godparents, you would have a, a mother and a father, and they would have a child, but I guess by canonical law, the godparents are more like brother and sister, so they're not allowed to marry one another. If you're a godparent to, to a child, don't fall in love with the other godparent, it's not allowed. I went down a very deep rabbit hole here, and it's, <sighs> yeah, it's it's not relevant enough, so we're going to just leave it there, but it was just weird. I mean, if they got to make the rules, if they got to put a disclaimer on something, someone's doing it. Oh, absolutely. But that one doesn't seem so bad. That's the thing that just struck me as odd, because you could be, like, not related to somebody at all and still be, like, godmother and godfather to a child. Yeah. So the second synod he held had to do with heretical priests. 
and most importantly out of this was a heretical priest called Adelbert. According to the letters of Boniface, Adelbert was all sorts of heretic. He was improperly ordained, he engaged in bribery, and he was arrogant enough to a level that he called himself equal to the apostles. Ooh, that's some balls. That is some balls. And this man claimed to have a letter in his possession that was written by Christ himself. And he would go around giving clippings of his hair and his toenails to people as relics. So he's like, I am a living saint. Here is a piece of my toenail. It will be a relic. Uh If he was allowed to have the internet, he would be insufferable. Oh, and we're not done yet, because it turns out he also had a thing about angels. Uh. He gave names to angels and led people in prayers of worship to the angels. And if you have heard our Patreon special on angelology, you know that you cannot worship angels. (laughs) No, no, it's whatever the opposite of demonology is. Yes. (laughs) I'm so disappointed in you for forgetting that. You're sitting there going, so celestial (laughs) missology? Fry! Angelology! (laughs) One of the main goals of this synod was to condemn Adelbert and prohibit the worship of angels and to stop clerics from using angelic names that don't appear in scripture because, as we know, there are very few names of angels in the Bible. At the synod, according to Caesar Baronius's Annali Ecclesiasticae, the prayer of Adelbert's was read out. So this is a prayer from this crazy man. He says, I pray ye and conjure ye to supplicate myself to ye, angel Uriel, angel Raguiel, angel Tubuiel, angel Michael, angel Edimus, angel Tubuas, angel Seboeth, and angel Simuel. Oh boy, I zoned out. Yeah. That was just a list. That's a list of just like made up names that he thought were cool. Also like a super big no-no because you cannot supplicate yourself to the angels. So we also have Zachary's alleged response to the prayer, and this is what he says. How, holy brothers, do you respond to this? The holy bishops and venerable priests responded, What else is to be done but that all these things have been read in our presence and should be burned in flames, and their authors cast into chains of anathema? For the eight names of angels which Adalbert has invoked in his prayer are not, excepting Michael, names of angels, but rather of demons whom he has invoked to bring aid to himself. But we, as taught by your holy apostleship, and as divine authority transmits, acknowledge no more than the names of three angels, that is, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. These the fathers say, by whom you perceive that the book called by the Vulgate name Fourth Estrus, in which there is frequent mention of the angel Uriel, is rejected and altogether prescribed by the Roman Church. Hey, Those are not angels. Those are demons. Stop doing that. They be tricking you. So Aethelbert was condemned in the synod, along with another heretic priest called Clement, and the synodal acts were sent to Boniface. I did not think angels were going to make a reappearance, but here they are. They just come around every once in a while. Mm -hmm. So all of this, with Boniface in the Germanic and Frankish churches, was also occurring in tandem with the changing dynamics between the papacy and the Franks. And oh boy, how they are a-changing. But in order to understand how this is going to affect the papacy, it's time to have a look at what's been going on with the Franks. This is going to be a very, very brief 
and very broad overview of what's going on with the Franks right now so that everything else that we're going to look at will happen in context. Here's your hot dogs. Is that what the new segment's going to be called? <laughs> Here is your hot dogs? Here is it your is hot now. Dog. <laughs> so we first introduced the Franks back in Pelagius 2's episode, episode 65, and discussed the unification of the Frankish tribes into a single kingdom under Clovis I, which founded the Merovingian dynasty. And since then, we've seen the Franks come and go, right? They've been invited to invade when the Lombards were problematic, and sometimes that backfired, and they would kind of come and go based on who paid them. But for the most part, they haven't been a significant part of our historical narrative until our last few popes, who have been reaching out to Charles Martel for assistance against King Leopold. In the time that has passed, the Merovingian dynasty of French kings has continued, but the level of unity and power of the kings has been in flux, which has led to the emergence of this mayor of the palace role becoming a seat of increased influence and power. At least, this is the understanding we have based on later Frankish histories. So initially, the title mayor of the palace referred to sort of a manager of the household of the king, but through the 7th and 8th century, it's developed into the de facto power role of the kingdom, with the king only serving as a sort of de jure symbolic figurehead with no legitimate role in governance. So the term roi feyanant, or do-nothing king, again, another wonderful epithet, is often used here to discuss the Merovingian kings. They're just the do-nothing kings. They're not actually in power. It's all the mayors of the palace. This term was coined by later Charlemagne biographer Einhard, who describes the Roy Feyenoord like this. There was nothing left for the king to do but to be content with his name of king, his flowing hair and long beard, to sit on his throne and play the ruler, to give ear to the ambassadors that came from all quarters and to dismiss them, as if on his own responsibility, in words that were, in fact, suggested to him, or even imposed upon him. He had nothing that he could call his own beyond this vain title of king, and the precarious support allowed by the mayor of the palace in his discretion, except a single country seat that brought him but a very small income. Of course, we have to carry in mind while we're dealing with this that Einhard works very hard at establishing the majesty of the Carolingians, so there's some motive at play at, you know, completely dampening down the power of the kings at this time. And this is where things are when we look at Charles Martel. So he is the mayor of the palace. He's not the king. He was also known as the Duke and Prince of the Franks, which are similar and represent sort of his military and political role, respectively. But what we're focusing on here is that Charles Martel was the mayor of the palace, and he had been very actively involved in reorganizing and reestablishing Francia as a unified realm, a task that had been started by his father, Pepin of Herstal, and cemented in the Battle of Tertree in 687. It's basically the end of the beginning of the rise of the Carolingians. Like I said, we're being very broad. Before Pepin and Charles... Francia in the 7th century had otherwise been fractured, divided, and decentralized. So you can imagine the actual status of the king, Theoderic IV, was much diminished and relatively unimportant. And then when Theoderic died in 737, no one succeeded him, and 
Charles Martel just became acting king, quote unquote, despite not officially holding the title. So then when Charles Martel dies in 741, his sons Carloman and Pepin, aka Pepin the Short, succeeded their father as mayors of the palace, but not king, mayors of the palace, for roughly half of the Frankish territory each. And then, through some power struggles that are more complex than we have room to elaborate on, Carloman places a new king, Kilderic III, on the throne as the do-nothing figurehead, while Pepin and Carloman secured the kingdom, quashing all of the rebellions and invasions, doing the actual kinging by their perspective. And this, right about there, is about the same period in which Pope Zachary comes on the scene. And St. Boniface is acting as the papal legate at the Concilium Germanicum, called by Carloman. So then in 747, Carloman decides to abdicate from his role as mayor of the palace and Duke of the Franks, and he travels to Rome to retire in a monastery. Goodbye. This de facto brother king, he is now come to Rome. He has been monked by choice. He's received by Pope Zachary, and according to some sources, Zachary is the one who gives Carloman his monastic tonsure, which would be pretty cool. So this left Pepin, Pepin the Short, as the sole mayor of the palace and the duke and the prince of the Franks. He is the most powerful ruler in all of Francia, but he's not king. So Pepin begins to plan, and he thinks he could simply depose the ineffectual do-nothing king and take that title and make it match the power. He figures he's doing all the work anyways, right? Why, why couldn't I just be king and then be king both in name and right? But in order to do such a daring thing, Pepin wanted to ensure that he was going to have adequate support. Although he's the most powerful person in Francia, Pepin wouldn't have a chance of succeeding if he didn't have, as our friend Rutger puts it, the consensus of the powerful magnets of the Frankish court. Basically, ruling couldn't be done alone in Francia at this time. And one place that he could secure a strong sense of moral support, if he were going to do this per se, per se, was through the Pope. So Pepin sends some ambassadors to Zachary and just kind of wants to test the waters. We have a small account from the Annals of Lorsch, which say, Burkhard, Bishop of Wolzburg, and Fulrad, priest and chaplain, were sent by Pippin to Pope Zacharias to ask his advice in regard to the kings who were ruling then in France. Who had the title of king but no real authority? The Pope replied by these ambassadors that it would be better if he who actually had the power should be called king. Oh, so you're looking to make the title match the power. Oh, I think that would make sense. And with that encouragement, Pepin then made his move. King Kilderic III was deposed and sent to a monastery in St. Burton, and Pepin was made King of the Franks. So from the same annals, In this year Pepin was named King of the Franks with the sanction of the Pope, and in the city of Soissons he was anointed with the holy oil by the hands of Boniface, archbishop and martyr of blessed memory, and raised to the throne after the custom of the Franks. But Kilderic, who had the name of king, was shorn of his locks and sent into a monastery. Again, with the whole shearing of the locks. We're coming back to tonsures yet again, because this is relevant, as Kilderic was tonsured at the monastery, but for the Merovingian kings, long hair had always been this powerful symbol of kingship and this royal dynasty. Cutting of the hair makes a significant political statement. You are no longer the king, in name or in 
actual fact. You just are a nothing now. So that brings us to the huge point of the whole thing, because not only is Kilderic divested of his personal rule, he is the last Merovingian. With Pepin on the throne, we now have a new dynasty that is going to stick around for a while, the Carolingians. And this marks the huge shift in relationship between the Franks and the church, a relationship that is going to become fundamental in its dynamic in both the secular reach of the papacy and the moral authority, if you will, of the Carolingian Franks, and the place of both in the European stage as a whole. So this is just like a really quick, like, 10-minute or whatever, crushing lesson of the end of the Merovingians. We're going to cover this in a lot more detail as we go, and I have lots of sources, thanks to Riker. So I'm not going to wax on it anymore at this point, other than to identify that this is a truly important moment. Pope Zachary condoned the efforts of Pepin the Short to become King of the Franks. Pretty big. Wrapping up, we can take a quick look at the physical impact that Pope Zachary had in Rome. One of his major projects was restoring the Lateran Palace, and during the construction, the head of St. George, yes, that St. George, the Dragon Slayer, patron saint of Great Britain, was reportedly found and transferred to be a feature relic to San Giorgio in Velabrio, a basilica dedicated to the saint. And apparently, the head is still there today. There aren't a, a ton of verifiable references made to this today, considering that St. George is one of those really big, very highly venerated saints that have become increasingly important when we start talking about crusades. His arm is considered one of the holiest relics on earth. The holiest arm. Well, one of the holiest arms. Not <laughs> not the only, because, you know, we also have Francis Xavier and a couple other ones. Big. Get them all together for a holy arm slap fight. I'm really upset, okay? This is, this. I, I have to tangent about this because it's not about St. George, but St. Francis Xavier's arm came to Vancouver, like, about three years ago, and it happened to be the week I was traveling somewhere else, and I really, really, really wanted to see it. And I was disappointed. And then it went to Alberta. And when it was out in Alberta, it apparently moved. Like the fingers miraculously moved into the benediction sign. And it was a huge deal. And I was like, I could have seen that. And I didn't. <sighs> but anyways, St. George. Holiest arm. You'd think if, they, if this basilica still had St. George's head, it would be a really big deal. Yeah. The only person I saw who wrote about the skull actually being there was Taylor Marshall, and that's because he visits the church annually. We've mentioned him on the show before because he wrote a fictional book that came up in my research about Pope Marcellinus, but he's also like a massive Vigano fan and a conspiracy theorist and a bad theologian, so we're not going to read his book or say anything more about him. He exists. The end. The worst. Also, this basilica that allegedly has St. George's head, also claims to be constructed on the site of where Romulus and Remus were found by the wolf that would suckle and raise them into the founding of Rome. So it's apparently got both the relic of one of the most famous saints in history and on the site of the origin myth for all of Rome. All right. Okay. Big claims afoot. Let's mm -hmm. just say that. Mm -hmm. Pope Zachary also constructed the Basilica di Santa Maria of Sopra Minerva, which was constructed over the ruins of the ancient Roman temple to Minerva. So 
you know, Sopra Minerva. The ruins had remained relatively untouched until this point, where Zachary founded the church and dedicated it to the use of Basilian nuns. And now we're going to end on something that only gets a very small mention in articles written about Zachary, but seems extremely significant. When Venetian ships arrived in Rome, carrying slaves that were going to be sold to the Muslims, Pope Zachary forbade the traffic of slaves in Rome and closed the slave markets in the city. He also went a little further, and he paid for all the slaves on the ships in order to grant them their freedom. Good. Unfortunately, the reason that this is only a side note is summed up fairly well in the book Europe and the Islamic World, which says, no doubt only a local and temporary impediment to a very profitable business. Fair. The slave trade is very much alive and well, but Zachary is making his mark. He's like, hey, no slaves. And yes, I recognize that this is very much, hey, no Christian slaves being sold to heretics, but still, no slaves. That's good. And then Pope Zachary died on March 15th of 752 of natural causes. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and his tomb was destroyed for New St. Peter's. Just straight messed up. No epitaph, no nothing. So that's that. It's time to rate this man. Papatum infallium. He is historically regarded as very capable and a subtle diplomat in a dangerous time, if you will allow me that quote. He proves himself to be very capable, right? He is bringing peace and stability through the Lombard situation, through the ongoing conflict with Constantine Emperor Puface. He personally visited Liutprand on two occasions to stop invasion and taking of Italian territory, and Ratchis once as well. He was a skilled diplomat, as we see. Church historian Johann Peter Kirsch says of Zachary, in a troubled era, Zachary proved himself to be excellent, capable, vigorous, and charitable successor of Peter. He also supported and contributed to St. Boniface's success in organizing and expanding the Germanic Church and the Frankish kingdoms. And although we didn't really have a good place to include it in this, Zachary is also famous for his translations and studies of the dialogues of Pope Gregory the Great, which was particularly popular in the East. Remember how in the East they called Pope Gregory the Great Gregory the Dialogist? Yep. This is mostly because Zachary made that happen. All around, he's done a fairly significant job for, for the papacy. You know what? Yeah, he did pretty good. I'm leaning towards like a seven. Yeah, I think, you know, his diplomatic skills and the, the, the way that he presented himself as putting himself out there as an authority, right? He's taking responsibility for territory. He's working on making that role of Pope bigger and more impactful. I think I'm going to match your seven. So he will get a 14 in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. Here we have nothing at all. Not even like a little tidbit. Sometimes you'll save them for this little area here. Sometimes, but you know, aside from the fact that he might have encouraged everybody to call Constantine Pooface Constantine Pooface, not really anything. And even then, you know, he doesn't seem all that not bothered about it. Seculari impactum. So this is where Zachary really stands out, right? He's considered a capable pope because of his secular diplomacy. He is the strongest example in quite a while that we've seen as secular influence. He's got to be right up there with Gregory II because of all these personal visits that he makes to influence secular leaders. He abandons the alliance with Thrasimon of Benevento and goes straight to Liutprand. He secures a 20-year peace deal. He gets 
territory returned to him and hostages returned to him without having to pay for them. He convinces Leotprand not to attack Ravenna. He's already quite big. And then you factor in that he literally supported the deposition of one king of Francia for another. The result is that the Carolingian kings and the papacy are going to be absolutely intertwined. From this point forward, the papacy is going to... Like, this is the end of an era, and now we're going to go into the Carolingian papacy. Because of the decision that Zachary makes to support Pepin the Short, both the Frankish kings and the papacy are going to absolutely skyrocket in power and influence. This is an inception point. This is bigger than just the foundation of the papal states with the donation of Sutri. I am going to, without a doubt, give him at least what I gave Gregory. What did we give Gregory? We gave Gregory an 18 overall, which was a 9 and a 9. I don't know. Deposing a king seems like very huge secular impact. I would almost give him a 10. I think that, you know, it's it's pretty much up there. I would I would match your 10, I think. This is going to be big. We're not going to see the end of this for so long. So I think, yeah, I think he deserves a full 20 in seculari impactum. Way to go, Zachary. Fossium Sanctus. So let's see how this very impactful man looked. Here you go. Oh, his bunny poof is very terrible. Oh, that's a bad bunny poof. It looks like a zit. It or does. A horn. Oh. It's a goose egg for sure. It's so separated from the rest of the hair, like it's not even close. Just shave that off, bro. But it's the style. No, you just. Ah, take it away. That, it needs to go. I'm trying to decide whether he looks peaceful or sad, because his eye, if you, if you look at him, like, with his eyes closed, it looks very peaceful, like napping, but there's a shadow under the one eye that suggests maybe they're open and looking down. Yeah, like, they're depressed? Why is he depressed? I don't know. Well, do you feel that he's depressed, or do you feel that he's having a nap? I mean, it's, it's hard to tell. It's very hard to tell. Maybe he's sad about his haircut. <laughs> Look at my stupid bunny poof. <laughs> it's so bad. This is the worst bunny poof I've ever seen. Oh, man. Wow. So how is that going to affect how you rate him? I gotta rate him a three. A three? Ooh. He's got a very good sharp nose. He does. He has like, a good sharp nose. The bunny poof is, it's awful. The rest of his hair seems fairly like bouffant he's got quite a lot of it the sides are very poofy the beard is prominent um it's even it's even if you look it's a little bit fork beardy he's got a forky beard kind of i don't know i feel kind of more middling about it so i'm going to give him a five because that's middle of the road which will give him a an eight which when we factor out is a two in this category but I will show you some more pictures of him, because here is our bad artist friend. Oh, even they added the horrible bunny poof, except they couldn't do it right, and it's sort of off to one side. It's definitely asymmetrical, and it is very square. <laughs> and then I have this this one from the Catholic Saints website that just stood out as different. <laughs> oh, well, he's hiding any possible bunny poof with a hat. He is, and his forky beard is so much longer. And then we have one more 
which I have no context for, but it's just Zachary looking like a Vulcan. Oh Sorry, no, a Klingon. Klingon, uh, yeah, that's, that's the one. That's a Klingon. He looks a lot like a Klingon in that one. So there's that. I also have found a new website that I'm very excited about with papal coins on it. Yeah, yeah. I, we looked at it once before, but on this one there is a coin of Zachary and it's the worst because it just makes him look like he's got like Dumbo ears, man. This is Alfalfa from Little Rascals level ears. It's wild. I gotta figure out where it is. Oh, Zacharias. Oh, mm-hmm. he looks like uh, Dobby. Yes, that's exactly it. This coin is in terrible shape, but at least we have it. It's cool to look at. Tempus Pontificus. December 3rd, 741 to March 15th of 752, which is 11 years and a score of 2.75. We're getting some lengthy popes here. All right, everybody. It's the canon bonus round. He is a saint. His feast day is March 15th, and he is not the patron saint of anything. Oh, boy. Ooh. He's got to be the patron saint of mocking babies. Mocking (laughs) babies. Who needs a saint for that? Us, I guess. (laughs) Doing something stupid as a baby that that just mars you for the rest of your life, I guess, is something that he's going to go down with. Which... Brings us to his total score, which is, might I say, extremely impressive. It is a 39.75. He's under Pope Gregory II by three quarters of a point. That's pretty good. That also puts him in 10th place out of all the popes we've covered. So it's pretty good and something to consider when I ask you if he's papally enough and pizzazzy enough with enough impact. For a papal bull? I'm not feeling it. You're not? Oh my god, this is the guy who made the Carolingian kings happen. Like, this is big! Uh, this this is a divine intervention role. Nothing else was fancy. Okay, fine. He went to King Leopran and said, Hey, yo, don't do that. And the king was like, Great, here's some land for you. The emperor, who was an iconoclast, gave him land. He started the Carolingian kingship. I mean... He is capable, which is papal bull worthy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't count. That way to go. Well, while you find it, again, so if you have for some reason decided to start on this episode and you don't know what happens when Fry and I disagree about... Oh, fuck. Uh, He rolled a one. Oh, no! (laughs) Okay, I didn't get through the description, but it... When Fry and I disagree, we go to Divine Intervention with a d20. 1 to 10 is a no, and 10 to 20 is a yes, and since he scored a no, we we debated at one time what would happen to the poor Pope who scored a 1 a on Divine fail? Intervention, but... I don't ooh. think we ever came up with anything. We didn't, and I'm kind of glad we didn't, because that feels so wrong to Pope Zachary. Jeez! Ooh! Oh boy, um, huh. Well, I guess you don't get it, Zachary. I am deeply sorry. Roll on the critical fumble table. Oh man, double damage, double damage. Well, that brings us to the surprising end (laughs) to our latest episode. But we have some thank yous to make. So first off, we have some patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So we would like to thank Robin Manee and Christiane Cree. 
Ego te absolvo. We want to thank also the Roman History and Byzantine group on Facebook and Rutger Kramer, who is my absolute Carolingian buddy friend who made so much of this episode happen. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will thank you a million more times as we go through the Carolingian papacy. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist, or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And I guess on that note, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.